Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations 2, that can be found on page 871 of your pew Bibles. As you're turning there, just a few words. The, the lament here is so strong that even in the flow of the service, it may appear a bit jarring to go from such wonderful sign in baptism, the promises of God and love, promises of eternal life, all of these wondrous things, and then we come to a lament. And I actually draw attention to that because that's the, the same jarring feeling that the people of the Lord experienced as his covenant people who now come in lament. And though the two are not unrelated, and though the promises of God do stand even through lament and are even the basis of lament, we still see the, the pain that the people of the Lord are here enduring as we began looking at last week and see again punishment for their sins as this comes at the start of the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem and the people of God. And they make this lament. Before we read Lamentations 2, let's pray. Father, your wondrous works are unsearchable. The depth of what you accomplish in them we could never truly and fully understand. And yet we praise you for your revealed word given to us in Scripture, that we can see all manner of how to live life in the faith, as well as we see in these texts to grieve and lament, whether it be from the position of sin and, and guilt, or even just a stroke of of pain that you have put one of your covenant children through, and how do we respond? How do we lament? We pray that we would see that now, and that you would be glorified as you reveal and open our hearts to this. We ask this in your name. Amen. Chapter 2 of Lamentations. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the, inhabitant, all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar disowned his sanctuary. He is delivered into the hand of the enemy, the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. 
The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Sends the reading of Lamentations 2. People of God, it's not easy to minister to those in grief and lament. You see, you want to fix it. You want to give them comfort. You want to take it away. And yet in This deep grief word seems so useless, so meaningless. Admittedly, there are times in a bit of suffering and a bit of grief where words can be of great help and great comfort, but in times of deep, deep grief and sorrow, when when the heart can muster nothing but a lament 
of pain and suffering, words seem to do very little. And so often we need to learn the lesson of silence, the lesson of suffering, the lesson to come before a sufferer and not and know that we can't make it better even as we want to. Even as we want to give words that will take it all away, that will bring to mind faith again, there are times in life, and this is just the fact, where the Lord will so strike, will so discipline one of his own, that they cannot see it, and in fact, are not yet meant to. They're meant to be brought into grief for whatever purpose the Lord has brought them. You see this in the prophet's own words, Look at verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? He's seeking a way to bring comfort. And says, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? You see, this is what the prophet himself feels. He wants to bring comfort, but he cannot. And in fact, it seems as if there is no one to bring comfort in this deep grief and lament of the people of God who have been struck by the hand of their own Lord, and rightly so. We saw that last time. We saw that there was no statement that they didn't deserve this. Truly, they even acknowledged that they had been the adulterous people. They had rebelled against God, that what was coming on them was a result of the very warnings he had given, and yet that doesn't take away this pain that you, you just feel dripping off the words of lamentations and the pain that they are brought through. Many are familiar with the seven stages of grief that have been Characterize. They, they're not a one-size-fits-all. It's not as if everyone will experience them or that you'll experience them in this order, but it is nonetheless helpful to show various aspects of grief and what a griever or mourner will endure as they th- go through this process. As they're listed, the first is shock and disbelief. The second is denial. The third is guilt. Fourth, anger and bargaining. Fifth, depression, loneliness and reflection. Sixth, reconstruction or working through. And seven, acceptance. What we've sort of seen in chapter one already is lamentations and the narrator as well as Lady Zion, the personified city speaking for the people. We've seen them both express shock as well as guilt and deep pain as what has happened. They've acknowledged this guilt. They're shocked by it. But now the word of the day in chapter 2 is anger. Anger. Not only the anger of God, as he has poured out his wrath on the people, but as well as, even in the tone of the lament, uh, an anger, a frustration from the prophet and Lady Zion herself at what she's going through and what she's called to endure, and this fits to us and what we feel. The tone changes from shame and despair in chapter 1 to anger in chapter 2. God is angry with Israel, and from the tone we see and sense that the poet and the people are angry with God as well. We'll see that in our first point, the anger of God, and this is in verses 1 to 10, the anger of God. Then there's a shift in verse 11 to the prophet's own personal words of weeping. So the second point is the prophet's weeping in verses 11 to 19. 
And then, as it did in chapter 1, we see in our third point, Zion's outrage. The Lady Zion herself, the personified city Jerusalem, speak to God in verses 20 and 22. And so we see the anger of God. The first ten verses of this chapter are clear of one point. It's crystal clear. The Lord is mad. He is angry. He's upset. Verse 1 opens, and verse 22 closes, with reference to the day of the Lord's wrath. His people, Jerusalem, has experienced nothing less than the wrath of God for their sins, and the anger of God motivated by that deep wrath. So many ignore the anger of God. So many account it for nothing. So many try to explain God as only loving and accepting. You hear sermons today that don't mention sin, that don't mention need for repentance, that don't mention the wrath of God. And indeed, the very character of God is called long-suffering, is patient and loving, and so he is. But he is also just. And even in the history of the people, there has been years and years of the patience of God, but that patience has run its course. They've used it up, and the anger of God comes upon them. They think... And people think of God that at the end of the day there's, there's only salvation for all, but it misses the fact that for disobedience there are reprisals. For sin there is punishment, there is justice. And the people of God are tasting that bitter cup of God's wrath that they have scorned so long. And Lamentations 2 then deals with the anger of God. In these first ten verses, there are 40 descriptions of God's judgment and anger. We can't go through them all, but they range in a description of the entire city and all the inhabitants there who have faced the anger of God, especially the temple. Lamentations 2 deals very strongly with the temple of God. Verse 1, it says that the Lord has not remembered his footstool. What does this language mean? He's not remembered his footstool. That's a reference to the temple, and even more specifically within the temple, to the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Chronicles 28.2, this is what David says of the ark. I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that is, for the footstool of our God. And so I want us to have this image in our minds, the ark of the covenant, that representation of the very presence of God, was even seen and depicted by the people as the footstool of the very throne of God in heaven. The imagery then is that God reigns and lives up high in heaven, exalted, but there at the Ark of the Covenant, his feet would rest on the earth. There was the link between heaven and earth itself. In the holy city of Jerusalem, the people could approach the holy eternal God. And that link's gone. It's been erased. The footstool of the Lord, that that tremendous blessing you see in in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's, it's all bringing that forward. Even amidst the people's sin is this amazement that the Lord has put his footstool of his very throne on the earth and dwells with his people. And Lamentations 1 says that, Lamentations 2 verse 1 says he's forsaken it. The footstool has been removed. That very footstool that the people took for granted. The very footstool that they, they said, this will always be here, God is always with us, is gone. 
Jerusalem was that link, and the Lord has abandoned it. Verse 3, you see the right hand of God that had comforted the people had now been actually extended to, 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 the, to the nations to bring them in, that, that very strong arm of the Lord that should be the one to protect the, the, the people from the nations is the very source that calls and beckons the nations to come and destroy the people. The Lord is pictured as a mighty warrior. He often is. But very seldom is he depicted as a mighty warrior firing arrows against his own. We're not going to go through all of the the ways in which the warrior Lord cast down his people. It's almost in every verse there's references. It ranges from the building, fortresses, and walls all the way down to verse 9 that even the instruction of the law, the vision of the prophets, is destroyed. So Lamentations even says that the law's gone, the prophets are gone. Verse 5 describes what we can hardly believe. The Lord has become like an enemy. The Lord has become like an enemy. You believe that. In one sense, we say, no, I can't. I can't believe that. And yet, if you've ever gone through deep grief, suffering, and pain, you can say, I can. I can believe that. Notice his hesitation. He doesn't say the Lord is truly our enemy. The Lord has become like an enemy. He's not actually saying that he is, but, but that all the actions have come against them by the Lord's own hand, so it seems as if he is their enemy. And in the heart of the believer, isn't that almost worse? Have you not experienced in deep grief and pain that creeping doubt in your mind, it's like all that God is doing to me is because he hates me. Because he's an enemy to me. Well, the people of the Lord, in their judgment and exile, feel this in a very profound way. The Lord has been the means of their destruction, and they experience his anger. In our trials, we face this in various ways and degrees. I'm sure you've all had it where sometimes in your life you go through a suffering, a grief, and trial, and you bear it so strongly. It, it's almost like you're Teflon, and, and, and you know this should hurt, and it should hurt greatly, and there's grief, but it's sort of, it, it, it doesn't even affect you. You're standing strong, and, and there isn't a, a great lament because of it, and we go through that. But then we also go through times where whatever we're called to go, it, it, it's, we're not Teflon at all. And rather, it's like the arrow of the Lord finds its mark and just sticks in our gut, and it's twisted there, and, and we don't know how to respond. This is the point of the people in Lamentations. They aren't feeling upheld by the Lord. They're feeling oppressed as if his, his palm is, is pushing them down so strong that they're smashed, that there's nothing left. Verse 9 reveals what has happened, that the law is no more, the prophets are without vision, they seem to be truly abandoned. Verse 10 shows the blight of all the people, young and old, whether it's the elders or the young women of Jerusalem, they all experience this. And the prophet seems to even indirectly contend with God because he's not spared his own sanctuary. Everything seems to go against a God who is faithful. The tone and language here seem to teeter upon the edge of an accusation that the Lord, you are unfaithful. It doesn't make it. 
but he's brought so close. And it mirrors the suffering heart who wants to say, Lord, you're not being faithful. Even if it can be from the position where we say, we know our guilt, but what about your promises? We know we've sinned. We know we're not perfect. But are you steadfast and loving? Do we see that here? They understand the sin they're being punished for, but they can't make sense of the destruction that they see. And that leads to our second point, the prophet's weeping, verses 11 to 19. Here, the the prophet who had been up to this point in the chapter describing what had gone on now speaks personally. The prophet becomes engaged emotionally and identifies with their turmoil and grief. And notice the language, he weeps and weeps, and the impact is so deep, mental and physically. It talks about him weeping to the point he's exhausted, weeping to the point that his bowels churn and he even is vomiting on the ground. That's where he is at. And his lament for, for who and for what? The people of the Lord, Zion. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to lament. We need to learn that we are called in these moments when we see deep distress to lament. Give us two examples. One a a false, a bad example, and one a good one. We don't want to be like Jonah. Jonah who came to a very wicked city and wanted to see nothing but them wiped off the map, and after going against his will, finally being constrained to go there and preach a sermon that had a greater response, perhaps more than any other sermon ever, bringing such a wicked city back to repentance, he goes and takes his, his place on a hill desiring to see that nation wiped off the map. He has a front row seat ready to see exactly what the people are lamenting here brought upon that nation. That's not the right response. Here's the good example. What did Christ do to this same city when he stood on a hill and saw what they were, their sin? What did he do? He said, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. He lamented. He lamented the fact that even though the justice and judgment of God is right, it's also sad. It needs to happen. The exile needed to happen. The prophet here knows it, but the the grief is not lost on him, and it cannot be lost on us. We are called to lament, whether it be our own sin or whether it be for those we see, that we would know their guilt and sense it and feel for it and pray for it and not look upon it with glee, but sorrow. Verse 13, as we've already pointed out, the prophet has no way of comforting his people. To what can he liken her? To to who can he give example? Even in our own griefs, we we have that. Most of us, in most times, can, can find, amidst God's people, someone who's borne a similar grief and trial. Bring them as an example. Bring them there. Hey, here, here's one like you. And the prophet says, I can't. There is no one I can point you to. And so what he's implying here is that his ability to comfort is gone. And so what does he mean then? The only one who can reach you and your need for comfort is the Lord. It's the only recourse. It's the only option. Turn to the Lord. 
When we read these verses about how great the ruin of the people is and their lament, how it's unrivaled, how God's forsaking his temple, his footstool, his priest, his prophet, his people, his city, what does that bring to mind? Especially that word forsaking. This is the experience of covenant curse right here. That's the wrath of God. That's the cup with all the dregs of judgment. That's what's being poured down their throats. Covenant curses. Punishment for sin. And the people have been forsaken and they feel that. Flamentations is the prime example of what the mourner, sufferer, the one forsaken by God feels whose heart would it most clearly represent but Christ's. Now that's not to bring all that's there and put it on Christ as if, as if he personally sinned. However, he is guilty because he took it on himself. He became sin for us. And so, so all that is happening to Jerusalem is merely a foretaste of the very covenant curses that would more fully be brought upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so how much more is behind the lament at the cross, O oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To bear covenant curse, to bear the anger and wrath of God. The silence of God in Lamentations is picked up there by a cry of lament on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? And so verse 13 shows that this destruction of the people of God is unrivaled. And yet I would say that, that that's pointing us as well to a future cross and judgment that is unrivaled in its depth of lament and forsakenness and sorrow. Then we pick back up in, in, the very, in the situation of the day, verse 14. The prophet acknowledges what had happened and caused this. There were false prophets that assured the people that they were secure. It was because they had corrupted the word of God. Their city was said to be safe, that God would never utterly forsake his footstool or his place of residence. This is a similar message that we hear about God today. He will always love and protect. He will always provide. Now that's true in a certain sense. That's true to a certain people. And yet needs to be properly applied because for those who have rebelled against God, for the apostates, there is no promise of this. And rather they face destruction. And then look, look at verses 15 and 16. There's the enemy's mockery, but see that the taunt is made that much more painful by the very fact that the enemies mocking them are worse than them. How can God use this judgment against those who had no relationship with God whatsoever, who were, in fact, far worse, and you're bringing them and they've destroyed us. They're mocking us. They're even saying, where are you, O Lord? Ah, the day has come that we've longed for. Israel's fallen. Jerusalem's gone. Mocking and taunting them. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. This was the purpose of the Lord. He's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago in, in threatening punishments for disobedience, for covenant, covenant rejection. And he's thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you. He's exalted the might of your foes. And on and on it goes. And then we see our third point, Lady Zion's response. 
sometimes difficult to pick up how the, the persons change from prophet to narrator. You'll see this later in the verse when the city is, is later in the verses when the city is speaking for itself, using those pronouns to describe itself, her children, my young and old, you see in verse 21. My women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them the day of your anger, shattering of pity. There's that personal call. It's, it's Lady Zion speaking now in verses 20 to 22. Basically, it can be summarized, to what nation have you done this? And she continues it. it doesn't, it's, it's incomprehensible to her that this is what the Lord has done to them who weren't a pagan nation and so she said, should, should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Later in Lamentations, we'll see this made explicit. The, the cannibalism that would have occurred even in that siege where the babies that had died in their mother's laps were consumed because of the madness brought on by famine and hunger. Should that happen, Lord? That's what Lady Zion says. Should these kids be thus consumed? She says, is it right that priest and prophet are killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Should that happen? Do you feel her turmoil? Do you see how fearsome the wrath of God is? Again, and I need to be clear, what she's doing is expressing the emotions of her heart Lamentations is not truly saying that God has acted wrongly. It's a catalog of misery. That's what lament is. A catalog of misery, and that's how we lament to God too. Number it, itemize it, bring it to God in all of its depths. Isn't that what is happening? We didn't read them all, but, but in what ways do I lament? And, and, and the prophet speaks of the walls that fall, the gates that fall, the young and the old. It's, it's catalog, cataloging every single element. It's going into great detail. In an acrostic poem, the grief of A to Z, fully expressed. That's what we're called to do, but why? Why would we do that? Why lament? To a God who's angry with you. You see, in this lament, Lady Zion is not abandoning the Lord, but is continuing to speak to him. What she's doing, she's trying to shock him into action at the very destruction she faces, that he may be here, present. That though she may, he may seem like an enemy at present, she also knows that he is her only hope. As the prophet says, no one else can comfort. I can't offer it. And so she, laying at the door of his house, is seeking a relationship she broke and cataloging and crying to him all that she's enduring for the very hope that he would hear. Much of the following I'm taking from Dale Ralph Davis, who on this text has a lot of very helpful things to say. Here's the point of lament and why we lament. There's an assumption behind a lament and a prayer. Biblical prayer, there's a simplicity there. There's a simplicity and a lack of sophistication. In the prayers, we see they tend to itemize their misery because their assumption, the assumption that they make, is that their misery matters to God, even though he's stricken them. That their misery matters to God, even though he's stricken them. 
Davis uses the example of his own life when he was a, a young child and he experienced, he witnessed his younger brother, rather young, do something wrong. And his father disciplined him for it. He, he had spanked him for it. And so there was that, that strike of discipline brought against one of his children. And what Davis describes is that it didn't take very long for his brother, who was young, to, to go back into his, his dad's office and to climb over to him, to climb on his lap and to say, Papa, I love you. We, we all have seen something like that happen. Does that make sense? Does it make sense for a child who is just struck in discipline? You, you, would, you would point it and say, well, why would you go back to the one who struck you? Because there's an assumption there that that's the very one who cares. And that's exactly the truth. There is nothing different than that going on here, that the people of God have been struck in a disciplinary stroke, and it's been hard, and yet they're the ones to go back and lament, to, to crawl on their dad's lap and, and, and to say, I, I love you. That's, that's, that's what's going on even in the midst of this lament. The assumption that the hand that struck, struck them will never less be the hand that welcomes them back. They describe their misery in detail because their misery matters to God and so does yours. There are those psalms in God's word where the entire lament is just that and it doesn't get to a statement of faith. Now, Lamentations is the, is the lament par excellence. We, we see that it is getting to a statement of faith in chapter 3, but that's not always the case in, in those psalms that just end with lament, but what's there? It's the underlying assumption that the Lord does care and that his, yet your misery matters and that he can and will relieve it, even if at that moment you don't see it and you won't see it. God cares for you and your grief. And sometimes we're called and brought to that point where we feel like God is an enemy, that he's beaten us down, and that we don't know why. But the point of lament is not hopelessness, but rather the embers of hope itself. It would seem, as you go through Lamentations, like the covenant has been removed. It's gone. God is gone. But you know that the assumption behind the lament itself is that there is still part of the covenant there. Because otherwise the lament wouldn't make any sense. That's what we see. Is there something, is there anything quite as beautiful as what that example Davis gives is of a disciplined child coming back and, and, and beseeching a father? So even in the midst of this lament, there is beauty. And with this before us, I present our theme, our, our lesson from Lamentations 2. It's this. God will pour out his anger against covenant disobedience, but because of the covenant, this stroke is disciplinary, not retributive. What does that mean? Retributive justice is justice for justice sake. There's no design or desire for rehabilitation. There's no design or desire to bring it to a point. The point of it is the justice. That's not what's going on in Lamentations. We might think it is. 
Even as we read these texts, there's no words that would clearly and explicitly say, ah, yes, what we see here is, is this isn't just the justice of God, this is designed ultimately for them. We don't see that, but that's the truth of what a lament is. God will pour out his anger against covenant disobedience, but because of the covenant, the stroke is disciplinary, not retributive. This is why baptisms matter. The promises of God, the covenant, is so true and is so faithful that the people of God who had walked away from him can come back, can lament. How great are the promises of God. Purpose of Lamentations, the truth of the covenant, the flow of redemptive history all show that this is the truth, that the lament on the lips is standing on a covenant foundation that can't be missed. No covenant, if there were no covenant, there would be no place to lament. We see here display the emotions of a sufferer coming against the anger of God, but behind the words is a foundation of promise and love. That's the beauty we see in Lamentations. That's the beauty of our God that we cannot miss. We need to be instructed and lament and do all these things, but don't let the circumstances that you are going through push you to the point where you can't even utter a lament. Sometimes the best and even only thing you can do is lament. But God's word shows us that's exactly what he would have us do. Because he cares. He's working through it. I want to close with a prayer of Kelvin, and this will also function as our closing prayer as he describes Lamentations 2 and our response to it. So let us close in prayer with the words of John Kelvin. Grant, Almighty God, that though you chastise us as we deserve, we may yet never have the light of truth extinguished among us, but may ever see, even in darkness, at least some sparks which may enable us to behold your paternal goodness and mercy, so that we may be especially humbled under your mighty hand and that being really prostrate through a deep feeling of repentance, we may raise our hopes to heaven and never doubt that you will at length be reconciled to us when we seek you in your only begotten Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.